Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing empowering futures and cultivating self-determination in children with our guest, Dr. Amy Coopersmith. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm really happy to be joined today by Dr. Uh, Amy Coopersmith, an occupational therapist who's had a fascinating career uh, to talk about self-determination. So Amy, could you just talk a little bit about your background and what led to your interest in occupational therapy as a profession? Sure. So I started out, actually, I had a, a previous career even before I became a teacher, but about 30 some odd years ago, I became a teacher of health and physical education. And during that time, I was exposed to child-led learning approaches. Uh, there was a researcher named Muska Mostyn who really impacted my teaching practice uh, by promoting child-led learning. And uh, during that time, I had all kinds of really interesting strategies. The children responded beautifully. and But I decided that I really liked working with children who had special needs, uh, you know, to really <clears throat> um, focus on things that were a challenge for children. And in the health and physical education setting, I had 45 children at a time, one class after the other. I didn't really get to know them. And I loved working with small groups and individual children. So I made the switch and went back to school and, and became an occupational therapist. Wonderful. And then could you tell us a little bit about your career as an occupational therapist? Sure. So I worked for the New York City Public Schools for 18 years. And uh, within that time frame, uh, I had many different roles. I started out as a school-based practitioner. I was in two different schools. And after a couple of years, they asked me to take part in the evaluation team. And I eventually joined a group of practitioners who developed materials for the evaluators to use um, that were very much uh, focused on child participation, top-down, strengths-based, you know, all those wonderful things that we want to try to include. And it really reminded me of how wonderful the strengths-based approach was that I used as a teacher. And I started including more and more of those activities and strategies in my practice. Then... I became a mentor and eventually a supervisor, and I supervised about 100 therapists um, in New York City uh, in all different schools, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, I was incredibly impressed with the range of strengths and and, um, amazing approaches that people used, and I decided that I wanted to try to introduce practitioners to some of the strategies I had learned as a teacher, and that's what kind of sparked this journey. Well, it's always, um, I think all of us love when our our supervisor is passionate about what they're doing and interested in evidence-based practice, and obviously, especially for school-based practitioners, to have an occupational therapist um, as a supervisor is just so important to be able to talk our language and, and communicate that vision, you know, with administrators within the district as well. There's um, a, a similarity between the way I look at teaching children and the way I looked at working with occupational therapy practitioners, because I looked at them all as I presumed their competence, I believed in their abilities, and that's what I always want people to do with the children they work with too. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, wonderful. So could you, um, we're here talking today about self-determination. Could you define what self-determination is and how you became interested in it as, a, as an occupational therapist? A light bulb went off in my head a few years ago that I've actually been working on self-determination approaches for probably 30 years. I just didn't put a name to it, a label to it. And as I started reading more and more articles and, and exposing myself to best practices out there, I start, started to become aware that what I was doing was promoting self-determination. So I began doing more and more of my own readings and eventually that led to research. Self-determination, just in simple terms, is an, a person's ability to figure out what matters to them and go after it and make it happen. Okay, so many of us um, already do that automatically, especially those of us who, um, you know, it came more easily to. But for children with disabilities and other children who have challenges in their lives, that doesn't necessarily come easily to them. So it's something that we need to bring to the forefront of our awareness so that when we're working with children, we can notice are they participating fully? Are they interested? Are they motivated? And dig a little deeper to figure out what might be holding them back from finding things that um, are, are important to them and finding their own personal goals. So that's what um, I'm really interested in. Yeah, and so for our model of human occupation fans, like volition isn't maybe a, an exact synonym, but kind of in the same family of, of language anyway. It is, absolutely. And that's that whole moment of making choices that uh, many of us take for granted. We just, when we all became occupational therapists, we made a choice that this was where we wanted to take our lives. But some of the children that we work with, it doesn't even occur to them to think about what they might want to do with their lives because they're told what to do all day long and they're helped. I'm using air quotes because it's not always the best kind of help that they receive. Gotcha. And I, when we were talking about and getting prepared for this, um, we like uh, our, our friends that are interested in applied behavior analysis and using some of those approaches. But really what you're talking about is child-directed and oftentimes ABA, well, by definition, ABA is not child-directed. It's um, really a lot of it is child-imposed. Um, and so um, I don't know if that makes sense for you or one of the ways that we would differentiate how we um, create a, a treatment environment and, and really look at treatment differently maybe than, than an ABA therapist would. Absolutely. And um, there are so many ways we can change the narrative and change the way we're working with children that are subtle, but they're very powerful things that we can do to make a difference and kind of spark children's motivation and engagement. And I work with um, adults with intellectual disabilities primarily, or, you know, transition age, uh, they're still adults. Um, and so we talk about self-determination a lot and we use the analogy you know for for them to be sort of steering their own ship or driving their own car yes. and helping to have that that mindset um you know from their iep meetings their employment planning meetings and and sort of throughout but one thing that i've really noticed and i'm sure you've seen as well is that um, kids with disabilities oftentimes don't have the same opportunities for self-determination than their general education peers um, do you think this is a problem and uh, what impact do you think it has on, on kids uh, that are receiving special education services? 
So I think it's a huge problem. And I think it's something that uh, many folks did not anticipate was going to be a problem. And I think some of it started, I'm not saying it all started from this, but some of it started with special ed reform, which happened somewhere around the 1970s when, thank goodness, people started to realize that children with special needs should not be separated and shuttled off to some kind of different school and different environment. They should be with their families families, their neighbors, their communities. And so that was changed at the time. But what wasn't anticipated is that there were certain things that happened. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. That um, were not so wonderful that accompanied that. And so I can talk about some of those factors that occurred um, one of the things that happened is with special ed reform, children were now in either general education classes or blended classes. Sometimes they're called collaborative teaching, where there's one general ed teacher and one special ed teacher, and they're with their general ed peers. And so all of a sudden, there became a need to hurry up because the curriculum was commanding certain benchmarks that had to be done on a timetable. And so children who took longer to accomplished tasks, all of a sudden now we're being pressured to hurry up. So how were they going to do that? They assigned teacher's aides or paraprofessionals to assist those children. And I'm not sure if this has happened with you, but I know for myself, when I was in the schools, I observed paraprofessionals helping children by doing their work for them and uh, doing everything for them sometimes, uh, taking their books out, turning in their homework to the teacher, uh, filling out the, the homework list for the night, packing their backpack, doing all these things that children should be doing on their own. So of course we know that some of the children that we work with aren't capable of doing all of those things, but we can slowly start to build their ability to do those things by being conscious that we don't want to do everything for them because the outcome of that is that they learn to to just rely on other people to do everything, and that's not a good um, uh, that's not a good outcome uh, in the long run. Uh, and then there are two other factors that we can talk about as well. Uh, one of them is helicopter parenting, and I also call it helicopter caregiving because it's not just parents that do that, and also academic pressures. So those are two other factors, and these were things I looked at in my research study. And there's not a lot of research, especially on um, the uh, how the helicopter caregiving and parenting affects uh, children in school. And there's not a lot of research on what I just discussed in terms of the um, 
special ed reform. It's just not a lot out there. I found what I could, uh, but this is an area that should be studied more because it affects millions of children. And we need to look at how we can uh, change that picture so that children do have better opportunities to take part in these day-to-day ADLs, you know, daily living skills of, you know, writing homework, filling out their agenda, turning in assignments, getting ready for the day, all those things that are going to make them independent as adults. Yeah, and I think as occupational therapists, we do that naturally, um, you know, to be able to obviously include our uh, the students that we're working with in, in everyday activities. And um, not everybody has that training or that experience. And um, certainly my lived experience has been the same thing that a lot of times paraprofessionals want, you know, people to, to look good and to do good and to feel good. Um, and at some point, in, and I think um, during COVID, I know there have been a lot of um, people that have left, you know, some of the entry level, paraprofessional level um, types of jobs and have done other things, um, which has, you know, just made a huge shortage of personnel to do that really important work. Um, which has just kind of exacerbated it um, even more. So um, what are the things that um, we can do in terms of of new school reform, maybe to help address some of those issues and um, what role maybe does occupational therapy have to help um, paraprofessionals or others uh, understand um, maybe how they can facilitate deep learning for the students that they're doing instead of just superficial, they, they look good right now. Sure. So first, I just want to start out by saying I have been incredibly impressed by the paraprofessionals I've worked with, and uh, I believe that everyone teachers, administrators, paraprofessionals, and all the practitioners that are my colleagues have the best interest of children in mind. I do not think that anybody set out to specifically try to hold children back. I just think it's a phenomenon that that it's a kind of modern phenomenon that hasn't really been looked at. So uh, there are definitely some things that we can do. One is Uh, I call it presumed competence, that we want to presume that children are capable of, it's a change in mindset, thinking that they are capable of learning some of these strategies on their own, learning how to manage their own day-to-day lives, rather than uh, worrying about them keeping up for every minute. So we need to know that it's worth taking extra time to allow a child to do things on their own. Now, it's not always going to be possible because we do have schedules. We have a lot of things going on during the day. And let's say a a class is going to the auditorium uh, for an assembly. We can't say, well, let's let them take 20 minutes to, you know, put things away. We know that that's not feasible. But there are opportunities maybe at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day. Maybe there's a free time frame when children have uh, free activities. And that could be a time when a child could practice some skills and take a little bit longer to do them without that kind of pressure going on. So we want to try and figure out how we can fit that into children's day and change our mindset to think about how children can do things for themselves instead of us doing for them. So that's a good start. Yes. So speaking of us doing things for them, um, I think we've all heard the term learned helplessness. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what that is and and how maybe that contributes uh, to the problem and maybe sometimes how systems are almost created to, to facilitate that learned helplessness? 
Right, sure. So learned helplessness went way back many years uh, when Seligman, who was the researcher, found that animals, it started out with animals, uh, that they noticed that animals who were never allowed to do certain things just gave up and never even tried. So for instance, if they were in a pen and they never were allowed to leave the pen, once the pen door was open, they never bothered to leave because they had no reason to you know they were just stuck and we this can happen with uh, human beings as well if you've had repeated experiences where you're never allowed to do something or you've never had an experience of successfully doing something and then someone jumps in and does it for you every time then there's no motivation for you to even try anymore and the the message the negative message is you are not capable of doing that on your own so we're going to do it for you and that's a message that can be internalized in a child when they hand you their milk carton or their bag of chips and says, open it for me, because nobody has ever thought that maybe they're able to do it. Maybe they just need to be taught a different way if their fingers don't work like other children. So we want to always be thinking about how can we change what we're doing to encourage and inspire children not to just always rely on others. So the learned helplessness is that habitual relying on other people and that lack of belief in oneself that one is capable of doing these things. Yeah, absolutely. I um, used to be a consultant at the Ohio State School for the Blind. Shout out to the Ohio State School for the Blind. Um, and uh, there was a, a young man that um, had an optic tumor when he was, I think, three years old and ended up having both of um, his optic nerves removed and his, his eyes removed and um, was in a state that didn't have a state school for the blind. And so he was kind of going through a typical special education experience. And uh, the mom was a PT and dad ended up becoming an OT after uh, a few years later. Um, but I remember uh, being part of the um, assessment team when they were looking potentially to move states so that their, their child could be in a, a specific school um, for kids that, that were blind. And one of the reasons the parents said is that in the typical special education setting, um, when he wasn't capable of doing something, the answer was, well, he's blind. Like he's not, he's not going to be able to do that. And so they really uprooted their family, moved to a different state to be able to be in a setting that... Um, the Ohio State School for the Blind and, and, you know, all schools for the blind, which are segregated, um, at least for, for parts of people's life, but are able to, to have specialists. And a large part of our job there was um, to be comfortable with kids struggling to the point of um, almost failing. Uh, so that they learn what their their boundaries are, so that they're able to, you know, learn to to walk with their their cane. They're able to feed themselves. They're able to dress themselves, without having that. They're blind, and that's why they they can't do it. And um, this young man ended up uh, was at the school for the blind, I think, for about eight years. And then in high school, uh, just you know, they he went to a a, a different high school um, and ha obviously had continued supports. Um, but his parents really intervened so that um, to get him out of a learned helplessness situation. And I think, um, you know, we're all on teams and have different expertise. And, and sometimes for some kids, they really need a really high level of support to be able to do that. 
Um, but I think sometimes even as occupational therapists, we can contribute to that. And so, you know, I think it's always for all of us in our practice, it's to evaluate um, what are the limitations maybe that we're putting on the, the young individuals that we're supporting. For sure. And I think uh, one of the things I didn't mention before when we were talking about self-determination is that there are three basic components of self-determination that uh, many of us just automatically accomplish on our own. And that is having autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So when we perceive our own competence, that we are capable of doing things, that's a very powerful message internally. And um, then the autonomy is just the actual being able to live on a day-to-day basis independently. And then uh, the relatedness is being able to have relationships with the people around us. And so sometimes all three of those components are blocked you know, or inhibited with children, especially in schools. And we all know, everyone in schools, everybody knows, and especially as OT practitioners, we went to school and learned the importance of client-led practice. And yet in schools, it very rarely happens. It just, it's too difficult. It's such a challenge to fit that uh, client-led approach into a 30-minute session. So what I set out to do was to try to make ways that are easier for OT practitioners to include these uh, different factors within a typical 30-minute session. Could you give some examples of how an OT practitioner might be able to do that? I have 10 strategies, which there's way more than 10, but I picked 10 for a book that I wrote called the Self-Determination Strategies Toolkit. Um, And those were just 10 of the ways that I felt were very powerful and very easy to implement. Uh, so f- within those, there, I, if I was going to pick three, because like I said, there's 10 that I included in that, that um, packet, um, but the three that I think are very powerful are asking questions, choice making, and uh, to develop choice making skills and goal setting. So those three are really, really powerful tools that can be used. Uh, so I can go over those a little bit if you'd like and yeah, just that would be tell great. you yeah. what, what those are about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the asking questions, when we ask a child a question, uh, like I don't believe that you should ever start a session with a child and everybody comes in and you say, here's what we're doing today. I think it's much better to come into a session and if the child is a communicator, if they're able to either speak or somehow communicate with alternative communication to say, what are we doing today? You tell me, what what have we been working on? What what are you interested in working on, Uh, you know, to... And when we do that, when we ask questions, we're giving some very powerful messages. We're saying, I think you know the answer, and I think you're smart, and I value your thoughts, and I want to hear what you have to say and what you're thinking. Those are very powerful messages, and some of the children that we work with never are asked these questions. They're just told what to do all day long. Go here, go there, you need to do this. Here's your clothes, I'm gonna put them on for you. Here's your lunch, I made it for you. And everything is being done to them or for them. So when we ask a question, we're changing that whole scenario. So I love asking questions. Another one uh, that I mentioned is choice making especially for some of our children who it's more difficult for them to communicate these ideas, it's usually pretty easy for them to make a choice. Even a child who's non-speaking and who has a lot of challenges in that area, they can 
uh, make a choice just using a choice board, which um, I'll share some samples that can be uh, made available to listeners of this podcast. So choice boards, you can find them on Pinterest. They're all over the place. Uh, I don't believe there should ever be more than two to three choices at a time, especially in the beginning when a child isn't used to making choices yet. And uh, so a choice board can give the child something that they can just point at uh, or uh, somehow indicate what their preference is. So a very interesting study that uh, was from the University of Southern California, compared two groups. We had one group that was told, your homework assignment is, and I'm going to make it up, uh, uh, three paragraphs on the history of Native Americans in the United States. Okay. The second group, there were two different groups. There was a control group that was, um, that was, uh, I'll, I'll, t- I'll just explain how it worked. Okay, so they were given choices. They could either choose the history of Native Americans in the U.S. or they could choose um, the history of the Revolutionary War. So those were the two choices. So, uh, so within that group, those who chose the Native American history were compared to the group who were told to do Native American history. So we had two, they're both doing the exact same assignment, but one group had chosen it, the other was told what to do. Well, what do you think happened? Exactly what we would think happened. The children who chose it did way better. They were motivated, they got better grades, they did on the tests, their assignments were much higher quality, they um, were initiated better. So across the board, choosing makes a difference. So that's something that we can easily include takes such a short time to just ask a child their preference and then they get to work. So that's the second one. And let's see, I went and then goal setting. Okay. We have IEP goals that we work on with children in schools. And the issue with IEP goals is that first of all, they're all adult created. Okay. The child usually, unless you're in a special uh, progressive school where the child is part of that process, it's usually from the teacher, the parents, some other practitioner who says this child needs to work on this. And that becomes their IEP goal. So goal setting that I'm describing here has nothing to do with an IEP goal. It's starting a child out on thinking about what's important to them and how they can work toward a goal. So they'll usually pick something that's very motivating to them, like get better at my video game or, you know, play basketball with my friends and get better at shooting hoops, you know. So those are, so those are not necessarily IEP goals, but I recommend starting when you're first starting with a child or, you know, if you're deciding to kind of re-zhuzh your practice and you want to just really you know, make a difference, you can ask a child to make a choice about a goal they'd like to pursue. And it should be a goal that they can achieve within one, two, or three sessions, something quick. And then they achieve success and they say, wow, I can do something. So it's this whole shift in their mindset that they start to believe that they have skills and that they have capabilities. So then we can shift once they've had one or two or three positive experiences with achieving a goal. Now we can say your teacher or your parents said they think it's a good idea for you to work on this other goal of writing a paragraph, which we know that's not usually children's favorite goal. But 
Where would you like to do it? When? Why do you think they wanted you to work on this? Let's talk about it and have a conversation and then say where, when, how, what do you want to use? You want to write with markers, pencils, on the wall, on the desk. So you're giving them all these options that might spark their interest even though it's a non-preferred goal. So those are three kind of simple approaches that can be incorporated into day-to-day practice. And one thing I just want to say is it is worth the extra time that it takes to do this because across the board every practitioner that I've spoken with that has used this approach said yes it took a little longer to do this but the child learned like that and they generalized it into their day-to-day life because they own it now it's their goal and their ideas and so rather than having to pull and coax and trick them into doing things they're doing it on their own my, my master's degree is in adult education. And I always thought it was funny that one of the highlights or hallmarks of adult education was um, self-direction and choice and being respectful of the history that's, that a, an adult brings to the educational um, environment. And I, I always kind of chuckled to myself because isn't that really what we need to be about with, with children as well, um, to respect those experiences and to, to realize, and I think, you know, with trauma-informed care and a lot of the, um, the way that I think education is changing to some degree currently, I think we're being um, a little bit more um, aware of, of bringing some of those adult education concepts, you know, down into, in, into uh, younger grades, um, because I think just as it's, as we as adults uh, like to be kind of have our experience respected and our knowledge respected, I think our, the, the kids that we're working with uh, certainly do as well. For sure. And when you see a child actually respond to this change in approach, uh, it's a very exciting kind of experience because you see those eyes light up. You see them uh, pursuing, you know, some of the schools that have embraced this approach when I've gone to visit them, they have goal walls and areas where, where children post their goals and their progress charts, and they, they run their own session. The child walks in. I mean, of course, some children who have more challenges, they need help with that. But, you know, we've had children in wheelchairs and children with cognitive challenges that they still know. They come in, they grab their goal card or chart, they go sit down, they look at what they're supposed to be working on. Sometimes it's an icon or a sentence that tells them what it is, but they just get to it and start working. And it's it's really inspiring to see. Yeah. And I, as I said, I work with primarily, you know, young adults uh, in employment settings. And so certainly self-determination is one of those evidence-based practices that we're trying to embed in all of our sessions. So we, we really um, even have created the employment planning meetings, which we do in my program about six times a year. Um, the individual runs each one of those. And so um, it's really fun. We have a couple of example videos that are on our, our site, um, but it's really fun to just see the pride in the person's voice when they're introducing everyone and they're going over their goals. And and just, um, as I said, you know, driving, driving your own uh, car or uh, captaining your own ship is a, a really important part of what we're, we're trying to produce. And, and seeing a child's... Um, uh, 
spirit lifted when they are given a chance to have a leadership role. So many of our children are used to just being, you know, followers. They're not used to having a chance to stand up and talk and and lead the way. And uh, I've seen that multiple times in my practice, how that changes things when a child can, you know, I've, I've recorded children, I didn't show it anywhere, but I recorded them teaching other children how to use a laptop, you know, and you see them like perk up. They get very excited because they realize that we're valuing and honoring their skills. So how do you help embed that within schools? How is, as an administrator, were you able to do that? And as a, as a frontline practitioner, how do you help to encourage um, the school to, to really um, take this to heart? So fortunately now we're in a time age where we have this new law, which is not so new, called ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, that gives occupational therapy practitioners and many other special uh, related services practitioners and educators the opportunity to have a seat at the table with other administrators and school leaders. So this is uh, kind of a new area for many occupational therapists because we're not used to this. We're used to kind of being in our own corner. And of course, you know, everybody says, wow, you're working your magic. This is great. But we want to also be able to share this with the broader population, not just with a few children that happen to be on our caseload. So the Every Student Succeeds Act gives us that opportunity to use multi-tiered systems of support uh, within a whole school or a whole class to implement some of these ideas. So for instance, the choice board that I just mentioned, that could be done with an entire class. And if you have the opportunity, you know, every school is different, every environment is different. But I know in the schools where I worked, once they got to know me and they saw that I had something to contribute, they were open to allowing me to schedule some of these whole class or whole school activities into my day. And um, it made such a difference. And I have one example where one of the programs I have called Captain Me, which I'll talk about you know, in a little bit, uh, it's a video program for very young children, age three to eight, to help them learn how to you know, be more independent and take charge of things. And so this practitioner started using Captain Me with a couple of the children that on his caseload. And the teacher saw it and said, I don't want you to just do this program with him. I want you to do it for the whole class. So he started doing that with the entire class. It's an interactive program. And then other teachers saw it and they said, well, we want that in our class. So now he's doing it for the whole school. Uh, Don't ask me how he's fitting it into his schedule, but he told me he's doing it with the entire school. And, um, and uh, everybody's on board. So sometimes the reason I'm giving that example, sometimes it just takes that little initial step and then people start to notice they start to notice a difference in the motivation the participation and then it kind of snowballs so i call it a grassroots approach uh you know we can't call up the u.s department of education and say guess what we have to start using more self-determination today um you know we would like to do that but who's going to listen right but we can start right away today or tomorrow we can go into our school setting and start using some of these approaches immediately and uh, observe the difference and hopefully others on the team will notice as well and it can grow from there great and um so our mutual friend uh dr sue basic uh, was on an earlier podcast. So if you're listening to this on a podcast platform, if you just 
I don't know, scroll down uh, maybe a year ago or so, uh, Sue was on the podcast and talked a lot about uh, ESSA. Uh, and so if you haven't heard that or you're wondering about ESSA, uh, she goes into a lot more detail there, which would be um, great for you to do. Or if you're on occupationaltherapy.com, it's, it's there as well. I'm just going to insert one quick thing here, and that is that there's a group called the OT, OT ESSA Advocacy Network. And uh, I assist Dr. Basic in running that group. And um, we have meetings about three to four times a year where uh, practitioners from around the country share success stories of how they've been able to implement some of these programs. So it can be very inspiring, especially if you have a particular challenge in your school. There's uh, uh, colleagues, there's about 500 some odd practitioners in that group, and it's a way to bounce ideas off each other. Wonderful. And Sue is the creator of Every Moment Counts, um, which is everymomentcounts.org. And then what is your uh, OTSA website? So it's called the OTSA Advocacy Network, and it's a Facebook group, but it's not a typical Facebook group because we don't have like constant, you know, inter interaction. It's really more we announce meetings, we say who the speakers will be, and then we highlight certain news and articles about ESSA. Wonderful. And I, I think that when we're talking about um, ESSA and, and occupational therapy leadership, you and Sue are very much at the forefront of helping school-based school practitioners really see the possibility. Um, and I know sometimes when we're in our, our individual school districts and maybe we're um, at a school or three or four or five schools in a given week, and um, sometimes as OTs we feel a little bit overwhelmed. I don't know if you're on any Facebook or Reddit pages or anything about um, school-based practitioners that sometimes just feel really overwhelmed by, by caseload and uh, some of those challenges that, that all of us have as part of our practice. But um, it is nice to, to get together um, with other OTs and to see what they've done and how they've helped to, to navigate some of those waters. And certainly um, having people like yourself that have a strong um, you know, supervisory background and understand, you know, what maybe someone's supervisor needs to hear or see. Um, it's really useful. And I know for ESSA, I believe you have some uh, documents that are specific to how you um, navigate that system, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and those are included in that Facebook group. They can be downloaded, exactly. And one thing I just wanted to mention is that the strategies that I'm describing here and that I'm suggesting are all things that can be done within an OT session. There is little to nothing that needs to be done at home to prepare or outside to document. It's all done because if a child is documenting their own progress, that helps you. While they're documenting their progress, you can be writing your note because you're watching them write or indicate however they communicate, and you can be writing your note at the same time. You can even ask them, this is what I'm writing in my note about our session today. Do you agree with it? Is there anything we should be adding? Because we want this to be a partnership. So it's best practice. We know it motivates the child, and it doesn't have to be done outside of a session. Which we all appreciate, <laughs> for, for sure. Um, so could you talk a little bit about, I think there is a, a connection between um, self-determination, learned helplessness, and, and occupational justice. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the interplay between those three? Sure. So um, I have been very aware and been doing readings about occupational justice and occupational deprivation. 
And it occurred to me recently that this is a major connection with self-determination and learned helplessness because we've talked about the lack of opportunity that children have in schools to do what their classmates do. When I say classmates, they're general education classmates. So, um, for example, uh, if a child is in a blended class with some general education and some special education students, the general education students might finish more quickly and then whatever assignment and then they can go choose something that they want to do. And then the children with, in special education, it's taking them longer and so they never have that opportunity. So that's one way. The other thing is that when there are paraprofessionals and teachers aides who are doing things for them, uh, that also reduces their opportunity to struggle and learn, just what you described before. That struggle and then success after the struggle is, uh, it's, an, it's a skill. And if we deprive children of that, they never have that opportunity. So there are many, these are just a couple of examples. There are many occupational opportunities within a person's day. And if those are removed, now you've got occupational deprivation. You know, we look at um, different political, you know, things around the world and we see certain cultures where people are deprived of certain things. But children in our own schools here in the U.S. are often deprived of opportunities. The other thing is that even general education students are sometimes deprived because of the helicopter parenting that I mentioned earlier. And it's not just helicopter parenting, it's also helicopter caregiving, helicopter teaching. It's this idea that children are not safe unless we are hovering all the time. So they have play dates and everything is scheduled, scheduled throughout the day. And for myself, when I was a kid, my mother opened the door and said, go out, come back when it's dark. And you had to go out and just make your day and figure out things. And if you, your bike got a flat tire and you were far away from home, no cell phone. So we had to figure out what to do. And you learned how to solve these problems. You know, you would find a neighbor who had a pump and, you know, you'd figure it out. And so children just across the board don't have these same opportunities anymore. So we can make a difference just by being conscious of this and figuring out how to introduce some of these opportunities back into their lives. Yeah, one of, a, 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 actually a special educator that I used to, to work with when I was at Ohio State did a study where she um, did an interest inventory for uh, young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, asked them what they liked and what they didn't like, and then intentionally taught them how to do things that they said they didn't like, and then redid the interest inventory. And lo and behold, um, they didn't like the things they couldn't do. And so I think that speaks to this as well, is that especially kids in, in special education just have fewer opportunities, less exposure to the bigger things in life. I think, you know, as a trying to reform a helicopter parent myself. Um, you know, we want the best for our kids and we want to make sure they're safe and all that sort of thing. But sometimes that hovering really limits their opportunities that they've had in life um, for all, all kids, um, but especially kids, you know, from that are in special education. It's done with great intentions. You know, people want to protect children, but at the same time, we may be harming them without realizing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially, you know, in the, in our, our post-COVID world, not that we're in a post-COVID world, but I think we're um, even more uh, aware of that and wanting to make sure that 
that kids are safe and protected, but you know, what are the, the consequences of, of some of those decisions that we as adults are, are making on their, on their behalf? Um, so in, ter in terms of looking at, um, you know, some of the, the strategies that you've mentioned, um, it wasn't a strategy, but it was a story. Could you talk a little bit more about Captain Me uh, and what, what Captain Me is and maybe if, if people can get access to, to Captain Me? Sure, sure. So um, during the uh, post during the actual COVID period when COVID started, uh, I had uh, left my position at the New York City Public Schools at the end of January of 2020, um, and uh, <clears throat> I did not know what was right around the corner. So I had many plans, as many of us did, and all of a sudden, oops, all the plans went out the window. And so I had to come up with a new plan, and I decided that I was going to try my hand. I have a musical background and a showbiz family background. I said I wanted to try to make some kind of a program for very young children, because there are programs out there for teens and um, even middle school children to promote self-determination and autonomy. But there's really very little out there for young children. So we all know if you think about handwriting, if you give a child a pencil at age two or three and they develop a bad habit, by the time they're six or seven, it's hard to change that grasp, okay? So that's just an example. It's hard to change a mindset if a child is used to having somebody do everything for them age two, three, four, five, six, and now all of a sudden they're 10 or 12 and they're just used to people doing things for them all the time and other people setting their goals and telling them where to go and what to do. So I said, we need to figure out a way to make that change at a much younger age. So as I was taking my daily walks during COVID, because we couldn't really go anywhere, so you could take a walk, and there I was on my walk singing songs into my voice recorder, uh, because um, uh, just an, a little aside is that's how I got through my prerequisites for OT school, is I had to memorize, as we all did, the insertions, the origins, the muscle actions, all those things. So I set them to music, because that's what always helped me remember things. So... Um, I used to sing these songs in my head when I was taking a test or, you know, in the lab to help me remember. So I said, you know, this would be helpful for children because I think, I know I've noticed, I would imagine other practitioners have noticed that when you go into a, a classroom, even with the most challenged children, when there's music playing, they perk up. It's a, a just a, an enlivening kind of experience. So I made the, I made one song, then another, then another, and then I said, I, what am I doing? I'm making all these songs. I'm not sure where this is going. And I have, as I mentioned, a showbiz family. I spoke to them and they said, here's what we think would work is if you made these into video lessons. So I made them into, I made scripts and the music and all that, everything that goes with that. And my family helped me produce the videos. Cousin in, in Canada, who is a professor of uh, film and theater, so he did the, the editing and producing, and I'm here in New York. The puppeteer who I hired uh, was from Brooklyn, and the musician who sings the songs, because I, I can carry a tune, that's about it. Nobody really wants to hire me to sing. So I found this wonderful musician and guitarist, and he sings the songs. And then my graphic artist is in California, and the web designer was in Europe and we all came together and put it all together with green screens. You know, I was never in the same room with the puppet because of COVID. So we purposely did everything remotely. 
And the finished product, I think, uh, is really a good support and it's fun, uh, which is why that um, occupational therapy practitioner, the teachers all wanted him to bring it into their class because it's a fun, it's a break, it's very quick. Each lesson is about five to six minutes long, so it doesn't take a lot of time away <clears throat> from other goals that a practitioner wants to work on. And so the topics are things like goal setting. Yes, right. <clears throat> and um, I, just as an aside, <clears throat> I show this to my grandchildren who are age two and five, and they're just obsessed with it. They, um, anybody can access the songs, all 12 songs free of charge from um, any music app. So just as an example, you can say, Alexa, play My Goal by Captain Me Kids. And so you just give the name of the song. So I'll share that resource with you with all the names of the songs. And that can be used during any session. It could be background music. It can be sung consciously together with a teacher or practitioner, uh, whatever the choice is. They're lively, fun songs. Each song is like a minute or less. They're really quick. And they address things like what how, being different, like, you know, because so many of our children feel different from their peers, um, making good choices, uh, you know, what to do when you make a mistake, uh, how to handle a mess, things like that, that our children deal with on a day to day basis. When I can see, especially I, I think of a, a young child with autism, you know, if they, if they like the song, then it could be part of the thing they like. I mean, just those are uh, not that veggie tales and other are, are kids still listening to Veggie Tales? But anyway, not that other child music isn't uh, wonderful. But you know, to have something that has a message that maybe will uh, will you know will stick with them, I think, is a really positive thing for everybody. Yes, and and I think you know when we right when we go back and think about our childhood, I remember Ring Around the Rosie. I could sing it to you right now. Have I practiced it in fifty or sixty years? No, I haven't practiced it, but I still remember it. So I think and and all the songs that I mentioned when I was trying to memorize my insertions and origins of muscles, I remember those songs because songs just they 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 live in a different place in our brain and they can really serve as positive reminders. Definitely. So your research looked at um, how teaching self-determined strategies affected practitioners and the children that we serve. Um, what are some of the findings from that? And um, what did you learn and what are you hoping to do uh, with that information? Right. So um, I did an extensive literature search and found that there is a lot of literature about self-determination, just not a lot of OT literature about self-determination. There is some, but most of it is theoretical and very little of it is how to translate the theory to practice. So, um, so that was what I wanted to do. Uh, now, what I did was um, I had these strategies that I was using myself as a practitioner. And when I became a supervisor, I noticed that other people were not using those strategies. So I said, hmm, okay, what should I do about that? Well, when I was a supervisor, I asked my superiors, could I give some workshops on this? Because maybe uh, when other people try it, they'll notice that it's helpful and I'll get some good feedback. So I gave many different workshops at when I was there. I, was, I served as a supervisor for about seven years and I found that everybody was uh, kind of um, agreeing that some of these strategies were working for them. So I took those strategies that were working for people and tried to m 
build it into a program. So I actually have two programs. One is that self-determination strategies toolkit, which is the outgrowth of my research study. And then Captain Me is the version that's for very young children with the music attached to it, which has the 10 strategies from the research embedded in the program. So it's those 10 strategies that are the um, jewel that we're hoping will help people. And I think it's just a start. I think someday we're going to add even more strategies. But right now I'm happy with these 10 strategies because they seem to be very powerful. And the 10 strategies um, were things that I noticed. Some of them were from Muska Mostyn, that researcher that I mentioned was part of my um, graduate work as a health and physical education teacher. Some of them were things that I knew from occupational therapy and client-centered, but I took them and made them a, a to-do list that, that, so that they're actually um, actions that you can take. So um, though that has made a big difference in occupational therapy practitioners who've taken workshops with me because they've reported that things changed in their practice. So when I entered my doctoral program at Temple University, I said, this is what I want to study. This is what I want to find out. I, want to I wanted to find out actually if the Captain Me program, which has these 10 strategies in it, was effective in changing children's outcomes but we were in the middle of COVID, and so they would not allow me into schools. So I said, okay, I've got to come up with a different research model, and actually Dr. Susan Basic helped me develop the, the new model of the, uh, the methodology of research. So the way we did it is we had um, 30 practitioners from all over the United States, OT practitioners, uh, who work with children, and they took a pre-webinar survey asking them all kinds of questions about their knowledge, their actions, and their beliefs in uh, their ability to promote self-determination. So they took that survey, then they took a 90-minute uh, minute webinar with me, uh, and I went over the 10 strategies that I was recommending and gave them specific examples of how it can be implemented within their practice. And then I gave them some action plans that they could take with them to actually carry out the strategies. And the, their assignment was to do, use the strategies for at least one month with at least one child in their practice. And then after that, they were given a, the same survey that they took before and filled that out again. And then the only thing added to, at the end was, if you saw changes, describe what you saw. So there, there was the narrative, the qualitative portion that was added at the end. So the outcomes were way beyond what I expected because they were only using these strategies for one month. And the reason was I had to finish my doctoral degree. So I had to, you know, do it in a short period of time. And of course I planned to expand the research later, but I knew I was on a very tight deadline. So um, I knew based on my experience that even after just one day, we can see differences, but I didn't expect to see that across the board the way it, presented itself. Um, it was just the, the outcomes were, uh, you know, at, at that 0. 0.0001 uh, level of certainty, that P is less than 0. 0.001, the, um, you know, the, all the indication was that these uh, strategies made a huge difference. And here's how they made a difference. The practitioners said that they felt more confident 
that it was more feasible for them to include these strategies in a session because that's what we sometimes struggle with. I've got all these IEP goals. I've got all these pressures coming from all over the place. And now you want me to add on self-determination. How am I going to fit something extra in? So I think they saw through this program that it really isn't something extra. It's just a change in mindset. So, so that, that changed their knowledge, their actions, their beliefs, and their ability to use these approaches. But what I felt was the most powerful was that they observed big differences in the children. So the reports were that they reached their goals more quickly, they were more motivated, they were engaged, they were excited to be there, they knew the purpose of them being in occupational therapy, why they were there and what they were working on. So there was a lot of, uh, of growth in their self-awareness. Uh, so it was really a win-win across the board. And um, because of that, I became even more motivated myself to promote these ideas among uh, therapists around the country and around the world. And my next steps, I have a few different uh, new projects that I'm working on, but the one project that I'm working on later today is to develop a frame of reference, a children's self-determination frame of reference for occupational therapy for children in schools. Uh, and this could be taught to children um, uh, sorry, this could be taught to occupational therapy students as part of their uh, education in their OT programs. So I'm working with professors from Texas Women's University and Kane University, and we're putting together this new uh, frame of reference. So that's very exciting. Well, wonderful. Well, I think it's your work is so important because in my world, I talk about self-determination, but within occupational therapy, I think it's a fairly new term. We certainly use client-centered uh, left and right, but I think self-determination really is a, a better focus for us instead of client-centered, um, which we're doing. You know, self-determination is really more about what the individual is doing. So um, I really want to thank you for your time. Are, are there any resources or places people could go to learn more about self-determination that you might recommend? Absolutely. Uh, if there, if anybody's interested, my website is called selfdeterminedkids.com. No, no, nothing in between, just straight across selfdeterminedkids.com. And um, I have a lot of links to other organizations and uh, resources. Uh, it's a brand new website, so it's just being built up now. I'll have courses listed on there as well. Um, there are other uh, websites, uh, as you mentioned, everymomentcounts.org uh, is, uh, is a wonderful resource with a lot of free, um, uh, you know, resources that people can access. Things like calm moment cards, all kinds of, you know, free um, ways to inspire children to feel better about themselves. And the Self-Determined Kids website also has free um, uh, examples of the Captain Me lessons and uh, blog articles that talk about different ways that we can change what we're doing to make the outcomes better for children. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that there are going to be even more resources. Uh, some of my colleagues are doing some wonderful things like Katie O'Day out in Oregon, who has something called the Visual Activity Sort. Um, you know, there are wonderful things that are developing out there. So we just all need to be aware and keep promoting each other in this really positive pursuit. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Amy Cooper-Smith, so, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'm just, again, just so excited to start to use this language within the profession because I think it's so important. 
great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs>